that was the opening music to Shanghai Express, released in 1932, uh, directed by Joseph von Sternberg, and starring Marlene Dietrich, Clive Brook, Anna Mae Wong, Warner Oland, uh, Eugene Pallet, uh, and a bunch of other people that were on the train. And it was a story written by Jules Firthman, based on a story by Harry Hervey. And I, I read that it was loosely based on an actual event, but I, I don't think it was documentary in any, any sense. Um, and you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net and on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews. And we have uh, we changed up our Patreon a, a bit. We only have one tier now, or I wouldn't say only. We, we have one tier now, and it's uh, $3 a month, and we used to have four. So we've kind of simplified that, and when you're a patron, you get additional content and we're going to be reviewing other types of uh, classic media like yeah old-time radio old-time television stage plays that kind of thing so broadway musicals that became films is, is one that i'm i'm after that one now because i i want to do some research on oklahoma the musical and we've also done some deep dive we're gonna we did a deep dive on anime wong and i think we're going to do a deep dive on um, basil rathbone next and just spend an episode talking about their life and career. I'm ready for that. I've been watching Basil Rathbone films back to <laughs> okay. back. Nancy's been saying I'm I'm hooked on Basil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's yeah, well I've watched uh, several Sherlock Holmes movies and I know he at the end of his life was not happy about being identified as Sherlock Holmes in real life. <laughs> People thought he I, was Sherlock I Holmes. Know. I did. I I still do. <laughs> Uh, and coming to you from rainy North Bend today, this is Matt. And here in Los Angeles uh, is Bob uh, welcoming everybody back to Classic Movie Reviews and our 1932 film Shanghai Express, which was released in February of 1932. It did really well, too, at the box office, as far as I could find. My, one of the things I noticed about it that I, that I really enjoyed is it's kind of an impression of the movie that's really well done. And it seems like it's a newer, more modern film than a lot of films from the 1930s, even up through the end of the 1930s. And the copy that I had was so clear. It was really, really enjoyable to watch. Yeah, I watched a, a YouTube video with a film critic uh, who kind of went through uh, Joseph von Sternberg's style. And... It's interesting. There was like shot. There was like frames within frames. There was a lot of like movement on multiple different level, like planes. So like things in the front and kind of in the middle and in the background. And the when you Google Marlena Dietrich, a lot of the images that show up are from this film, where there's that key light over her head, and it's and she's sitting there kind of looking up at the light. And he was really brilliant at like lighting and really understood how to make things show up on film the way he wanted to. So it, it did feel way more modern than I was expecting. I think uh, before we started, we were talking about uh, the director, Joseph von Sternberg, and you had watched a documentary on his life, and I had read about a lot of his life, and he was very, very involved in all aspects of the film. In fact, I think you said that he... He did pretty. He said he did. He said he did pretty much everything. Yeah, he said that 
I don't admire anyone. Uh, most of my work was done in, in uh, opposition of the work that was done by other people. And, uh, of course, I have no uh, traceable influence to, uh, to motion pictures, but my uh, influences, if there are any, are from literature and painting and other arts, which uh, I then incorporate into the film. I'm afraid in most cases I uh, not only supervise, but I actually do it, and I do the decoration and the costumes and write the story and control the actors and make the props and cut the picture. I do the, the, the entire thing. It takes me quite some time to do it. I mean, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but <laughs> well, he was yeah, he, he was, was really kind of good. a what is that word art auteur? He he was you know he's one of these people that he was it was an art for him. You know, it wasn't just about making a movie, but it was about making a piece of art. And I think that's how he approached his films. And and you had mentioned that he wasn't really as well appreciated in the United States as maybe he could have been, or maybe even wished that he was, but. Um, I, I don't know that I've really heard much about him. I, I went into a YouTube rabbit hole about him, so I know a lot more now, but up until watching this, I wasn't really that aware of him. You know, as I think about it, Stanley Kubrick would be the same kind of a person and director that Joseph von Sternberg was. They didn't do a lot of films, but they really took it to a whole different level of art and your personal impression of the films. I remember reading about... Kubrick saying that the end of that film, it was really up to the viewer to decide what was going to happen because it was art. And whatever you saw yeah. was what you believed. I think that's part of what he was doing here. Uh, yeah, definitely. And, and the way that they put that film together was all almost all shot in Hollywood. And there was some, they sent a crew to China to get some background plates and in some of the scenes in the train when they're rolling along and you see some scenery in the background and people that's those are the background plates that they shot um, but they they did a really good job of making you feel like you were in china on this train i felt like they they and it had a very contained feel because it mostly did either happen on the train or in that kind of train station where they had the jail kind of set up where they were holding out and it, it it could almost have been like a stage play, you know, with yeah. a couple different set setups. I've always enjoyed those train movies, and there's so many of them. You know, we've reviewed Narrow Margin, and then there's uh, Murder on the Orient Express, and and there's so, uh, many others. And this, I really liked it because of that. I like to be. It's sort of claustrophobic as you watch it. The lighting really almost veers into uh, noir. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the film did win an Academy Award for cinematography, and uh, James Wan Howe uh, and Lee Grams, Grams were involved in that. And James Wong Howe went on to a long and prestigious career as a cinematographer. So many films. That's another person we should do a deep dive on because... I was so impressed with his resume. I, again, another person that I wasn't really aware of, so the movie was very enlightening for me. Well, what we could do is sort of a a, a kind of a 
an in-depth look at James Wong Hao and then compare him to the cinematography work of another uh, person at about that time, maybe a little bit later, Jack Cardiff. Oh, yeah. The two of them, really, when they when they were in charge of the cinematography, the film went up several levels just because of how how, how art, uh, how, how they made art so come alive in, in such detail and excellent. So that might be another deep dive we could do. Uh, we're, we're mapping out our next 100 podcasts. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> well, there was a scene uh, about halfway through the movie when they, they're stopped by War- Warner Olin's character, Henry Chang, and they're all forced to get off the train, and then he's like interviewing each one, and he's looking for somebody to have as a hostage because one of his top military people was captured earlier in this journey on the train at another stop by the Chinese government. And there's all these like nettings, like these, these insect nettings that are hanging down in, in this, I don't know if it was a train station or or jail or whatever it was. Um, But the, the woman who was the film critic, uh, but I'll put a link to it in the show notes said that that's a very von Sternberg, effect he, he was more interested in creating an effect when you think about it those those nets were not functional at all because they had these big gaps in them and they wouldn't have kept any bugs out so when you think about the functional aspect of that it doesn't make sense but when you see it on screen and how beautiful it was and 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 the the effect that it created it adds a whole nother dimension to the to the movie i think absolutely and it just it just makes the film more interesting i get more involved in it such that had such high production values and the clarity and all was excellent uh, a little background to to the story it's taking place in china when there's a civil war between the government and the rebels and i don't think they really ever say i think it was it was avoided in the film but it would have been the government would have been the nationalists and it was right around the time when the communists were coming. To- yeah, they were they were uh, probably the rebels. And to make things even worse, then then the Japanese invaded China in, in around that time period. So there was just a whole lot of war, uh, war going, uh, different effects of war going on. I think that would have increased the interest of the audience here in the U.S. to seeing a film like this because of the current events at that time. Oh, definitely. And and our next movie is going to be about the Japanese invading China. Oh, yes. We see a whole different Anna Mae Wong in The Lady from Chungking. Yeah. Man, she is really in charge of this uh, band of patriots that are fighting the evil Japanese invaders. Uh, I, I watched that and then I'm going to watch it again because I enjoyed it so much. It's such a different role for her compared to those that she made like in 1949 or in 1960 where she kind of did a stereotype but that film, I think, is really excellent. What can we say about Marlena Dietrich? I mean, holy smokes. Her career lasted from 1919 until 1984. Wow. And uh, just a couple of the films that I've seen, I wanted to mention that she was in, both of which are are really superior films. Witness for the Prosecution from 1957 mm-hmm. and, and Judgment at Nuremberg from 1961. Both of those oh, yeah. we should add to our list because once you've seen Judgment at Nuremberg, it'll it'll really, I think most listeners would be totally impressed with how well that film is done. A Stanley Kramer, uh, excellent, excellent movie. But she, um, <laughs> she, I don't know how to describe her in this film. She's, <laughs> she's kind of the, she's the kind of lady that's kind of mysterious and 
and very uh, uh, attractive and, and, and says all the right things. And she really is pursuing the Clive Brook, the Clive Brook character, Captain Donald Doc Harvey. And uh, I would like to have known more about what their life was like together at an earlier time. It's, uh, geez, she was she was uh, quite impressive in this film. And and another actress at that time, Greta Garbo, often had that same kind of a role. Marlene, I think, was of German background, and Garbo was Scandinavian. I don't know if you'd call him a vamp. That's, that doesn't seem to do doesn't it justice. Seem right. I, no. Well, I, I I was reading that she almost defines a new archetype in this film, uh, where she can be really strong and at the same time vulnerable. Yeah, it is. It is. I'm not quite sure what the word is for that, but she does a great job of portraying that character and the the whole sort of dynamic between her and Captain Donald Harvey, played by Clyde Brook, is interesting because they're both so stubborn, I guess, in a way, and yet you can tell they love each other so much and they want to be together. I think there's some social pressure maybe going on too because he's this captain in the army and her her name in the movie is Shanghai Lily. She's this, um, I guess, a prostitute. Yeah, she's a prostitute who lives on the coast. She's a coaster. That was the name of what they called her in the movie, a coaster. And I guess that was an actual thing where these independent women would live on the coast of China in Shanghai. Maybe he was a bit feeling like he he wasn't supposed to be with her because of his station in the army at the time but uh he goes off he goes off to to war or something or on some assignment he's gone for what five years and then they just happen to meet up again on this train and their relationship that spark is still there between them it sure is and i think captain doc harvey epitomizes the formality and the uptightness of of uh, many people at that time. I mean, that I I think he was he was really self-contained. It, I the the one thing I thought about the film that was was hard for me to identify with him about was the fact that he just could not loosen up hardly at all. A little bit, a little bit, but uh, plus, of course, he was on a mission. He had to get through to do this uh, emergency surgery that was necessary, but. Man, he, he talk about a stiff upper lip. That was him. He loosens up a little bit at the very end. I think at the literally in the last scene, you know, shot of the movie. I would say. I just wish he'd have been a little more animated. Yeah, but I think that was that. That was his character, though. I, yeah, I, do I think know. That was like yeah. you're saying that was that was portrayed correctly for that character. And you get you get the sense that Marlena Dietrich's character, Shanghai Lily, and also Anna Mae Wong's character, Hu Fei, are are a bit ostracized on the train because somebody was assigned the same cabin as Anna Mae Wong and they protested and said, I can't be in the same cabin as this type of woman. Yes, sir. I won't share a compartment with this woman. Change it tonight. You'll change me now. I haven't lived for 10 years in this country not to know a woman like that when I see one. Get me another compartment. Take my luggage out of here. I didn't take that to mean Chinese. I took that to mean prostitute. That's, that's the way I took it also. And wasn't she beautiful in this film, Anna Mae Wong? Oh, gosh, she was, yeah, she looked amazing. I, I mean, yeah. And she enjoyed... I can see why she's a fashion icon. I could, well, the two of them together became good, close friends. and uh, Oh, yeah. She defined the, the uh, term chain smoker. My <laughs> word. She did smoke a lot. <laughs> wow. 
I was going to mention on Clive Brook, he did over 100 films. And in 1932, he played Sherlock Holmes in a movie. What? Yes. Okay. Yes. I got to check that out. 1932. I forget the name of the title of the film, but he was Sherlock Holmes. He was one of the early film versions. That is early. Uh, huh. And Anna Mae Wong. Uh, this is a much, much uh, different character than, than we saw in The Toll of the Sea and, and going to be completely different than the one we see in Lady from Shanghai, a uh, Chung King. But uh, the two of them, uh, Marlena and, and Anna Mae, are really paired off what could be a buddy film about them yeah i think so too i the only the only thing that i wished after watching it was that we had more with anime wong she she actually yeah. didn't have that many lines and she really wasn't in in the film that much she has a really pivotal role in the movie and i i did boy does she yeah. ever yeah <laughs> and she's a really strong character and she she when she is on the screen she dominates the screen even i think above marlena dietrich uh but I would have wished to see a little bit more of her and maybe a little bit more of Anna Mae Wong and Marlena Dietrich together. That would have been cool. I think one of the, one of the major things I liked about the film is it, it throws all these people from different backgrounds. There's a Christian missionary, all kinds of other people, the kind of mysterious Warner Olin character who's really involved with the rebels. Onto this train. Mrs. Haggerty and her and her little dog that she yeah. has to sneak onto the train. Suppose you'll be as glad to be at home as I will. We know what year it is, don't we? Now you just be a good boy and don't make a noise, or they'll put you in the baggage car. And, and they just get tossed together on this on this train, and off they go th- through civil war and strife, and and the character development and the and the dialogue and all is really something that I enjoy in, in, you know, classic films, and it's it's alive and well here. I agree with you, though, that Anna Mae Wong's character could have been, uh, could have been broader. I think there's even an opium dealer on board. Yes, Eric Baum is the character played by Gustav von Seiderditz. Right, that, that, that we find out he's an opium dealer when Henry Chang is doing those interviews trying to find out who these people are. What is your business, Mr. Baum? I have a coal mine near Calcutta, a bankrupt coal mine. You have no coal mine. According to papers found in your luggage, you deal in opium and have shipped 12,000 pounds of it into China in the last year. Oh, you are wrong. I deal only in coal. I don't traffic in forbidden merchandise. Do you know that a Chinaman dealing in opium is penalized by death? You can't shoot me. I'm willing to pay a fine. I can explain everything. Of course you. Here, here, I am not punishing you for dealing in opium, but for your insolence to me on the train. And he knows that, that this guy, Eric Baum, is a opium dealer. And he says, I don't care about your opium dealer. I want to know, do you know anybody? You know, <laughs> Are you rich? Are you famous? <laughs> he is looking for a hostage, right? Yeah. 
because he's a he's an interesting character too. He's he's a he's a Swedish actor who played a lot of Asian characters in in Yellowface, is what it was called. Oh, he was and, he uh, was either the fr- he was either the first or the second Charlie Chan in those films. Yeah, I think he was the first one. Which which is offensive, and it's it's akin to me to blackface in a lot of ways. Oh, uh, definitely. Yeah, kind of railed against the good earth in our last episode because of that that exact situation where they had two white actors playing uh, Asian characters, but. The, where I'm going with this is that in this movie, though he plays a uh, he plays uh, half Chinese, half is it American or English uh, character? I think it's uh, European, but I'm not sure what country. Yeah, and 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 so it comes off a little bit differently. Like it's still, it still would have been best to find uh, an actor who was who was half Asian, half European. But I didn't find it to be as offensive in this role because he he was playing kind of a different role and I could kind of see that he he was torn again between these two worlds where he he wanted to be Chinese and he was ashamed of his white half. He even said so in the movie. Pardon me. What do you say to you? Something he'll probably have occasion to regret. I can't make head or tail out of you, Mr. Chang. Are you Chinese, or are you white, or what are you? My mother was Chinese, and my father was white. You look more like a white man to me. I'm not proud of my white blood. Oh, you're not, are you? No, I'm not. Rather be a Chinaman, huh? Yes. What futures of being a Chinaman? You're born, eat your way through a handful of rice, and you die. What a country. Let's have a drink. And I think that fueled some of his rage and his anger in the film and explains some of the stuff that he's doing. He's a really bad dude. I thought his face seemed familiar. The government has offered a price of 20000 for his capture, alive or dead. It will be a great day for China when that price is paid. Especially when he, what he does with uh, Anime Wong's character. Yeah. Well, he gets his comeuppance, doesn't he? He really does. <laughs> that scene where he gets his comeuppance, man, that was so well shot. That was such a good scene. That felt more modern to me, too. Just the way they're done. That was right out of a thriller, you know, like a Alfred Hitchcock thriller or something. The Paramount studio heads were concerned because the Hayes office, here we go, the Hayes office was omnipresent, and they were, they were concerned because a, a Reverend Carmichael character was involved and it was a depiction during the Chinese Revolution. So I can imagine they were hovering all over the place to enforce their many, many rules. I, I bet I bet von Sternberg was appreciative of that, I'm sure. That, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I'm sure there was no shouting math, matches on the set or anything. I never got to look up whether or not he told him to get off the set. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that, it just brings us back to another subject that we need to do a podcast on, and that is the whole influence of the Hayes office and what it did to films and what it didn't do to films. And I watched uh, a film just a couple days ago that was from 1960 that really put an end to the Hayes office. I mean, they said, I think it was almost intentionally done to say thumb their nose at the whole deal because everything that the Hayes office wanted to enforce was was thrown out for this film and they just went full speed 
head, and uh, listeners may remember it's Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho from 1960. Man, that that throws the book out. I think we're going to do a, uh, another episode on Patreon where, where it's just talking about the Hayes office, but it was... Was that a government like agency kind of enforced thing, or was this more of an industry sort of enforced thing? Uh, industry. Yeah, the industry set it up and funded it, and I think it had an <sighs> yeah, independent that's... board, and then it morphed into what is now the Motion Picture Association. Is it MPAA the... or something? Yeah, MPAA, which which now has yeah. the ratings on the films, you know, PG, PG thirteen, G, and so forth. That that's the. Uh, that's the morphed predecessor to the Hayes office. But I took another look at the at the code that Hayes had, and it's just <laughs> given today and the and the world that we're in. It, again, it's going back 190 years ago. Just seems so out of touch with with reality. But uh, yeah. as we mentioned, it was probably put in place for many of the reasons that people wanted to keep the status quo and not let the film oh, industry totally. get get out of hand. Well, and I think when you look at the movies that were coming out right before they instituted that, it, you could see, I mean, the, I, you could see how modern they, they, they seem. And I, and I just wonder what movies would be like today, if they would be different, I don't know, if, if the Hayes Code had never been put in place, you know, like what kind of movies would we have seen in the 30s and 40s if that hadn't been put in place? <laughs> <laughs> quite, wow quite quite different quite different and anyway uh the plot in this is 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 really i like it because it, it's kind of based on facts and and current events at the time and the characters are so well developed and we're never quite sure all the characters who they are and what's involved it becomes clear to us once doc harvey is taken prisoner but uh i, I don't know it's 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 a little bit like an Agatha Christie film to me. Yeah, it does feel that way a little bit. Um, and I, I like the introduction where we get the kind of this mysterious woman is pulled up uh, on a rickshaw and, and gets off and goes on the train. And then uh, we see a few other interactions. We've got uh, Miss ha- Mrs. Haggerty all up in arms about, well, is this going to be safe? You know, and I've heard there's yeah. a revolution and... <laughs> I won't get off. We'll all be killed. The conductor promised me there wouldn't be any trouble or I wouldn't have brought bottles along. Well, ma'am, don't get me excited. I'm trying to figure the odds of any of us getting out of this alive. And then I forget who's behind her, but there's another guy behind her who is just, like, rolling his eyes. And and then we cut back, and there's another... There's a really big car that pulls up and has a driver, and the driver gets out and lets Marlene Dietrich's character out. And she's dressed to the nines. I mean, she's so stylish. I mean, both Anna Mae Wong and her in those opening shots looked amazing was that i can't remember was anime wong in that limousine with her or did they no no she came she came first and she was pulled by a rickshaw like a a nice one a nice one but it wasn't like this limousine wasn't like shanghai lily and 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 then you hear like people talking about how there's shanghai lily on the train and you think well that must be anime wong's character and no you come to find out it's actually marlena dietrich's character Um, and she's been given that nickname uh, I think Lily, you know, being white and Shanghai, she's she's like this coaster in Shanghai, and she's she's this white woman. I think that's probably what that denotes. So, uh, and then there's some drama about getting everybody situated on the train, and is Miss Haggerty going to be able to keep her puppy, and you know who's going <laughs> to be in the room with Hu Fei, and 
and it ends up being Shanghai Lily and Hufei in, in the same cabin together. There was much to do about who got what cabin assignments. Yeah, and it's it's still interesting <laughs> to me that people were just walking up and buying these like first class tickets, and I saw that the co- cost of those would be equivalent to about eight hundred dollars. Oh my in today's word. money. So they're just walking up to the ticket counter, buying an $800 ticket and getting on, like right before the wow. train takes off. But I guess, you know, that makes sense. You couldn't really purchase them ahead of time using the internet. You know, they didn't have an app for that. So <laughs> so the, the car with all these people, most of them were in the upper 1%, as we yeah, say Yeah, that, that was all like the first class. Yeah, that was the first class train car. Uh. Uh, and then there, then you have, then you have like other people just packed, like standing room only in some of the other cars. You see that they were like climbing in through the windows. Yeah, and it was like. And then the yeah. troops were outside hanging on. Yeah, the were troops out, were outside hanging yeah. on, and oh, that scene where they were kind of getting started, and the, you get the scale and the size of that engine as it's kind of going through this really narrow. It's not a street, but you know, passageway. <laughs> Oh, I thought of you when you guys were in uh, Vietnam and you took yeah, the video yeah. of that train in Hano- Hanoi. In Hanoi, exactly. <laughs> you know what? I found out that they closed all those shops. That I guess it got to be even too dangerous for Hanoi. Like people were getting killed by the train and stuff. Oh. But when we were there, you were able to get there early enough and then go sit at this coffee shop and, and then the train would pass and it would literally be like two feet away from you. <laughs> And you'd be sitting here drinking this coffee. We were in the upper floor of this little coffee shop, and then we could see the train go by. It was really cool. I thought of you when I saw this. But then they have to stop because the cows won't get off the yeah. the, the uh, tracks. <laughs> and then those poor chickens. <laughs> and the chickens, you just got the sense of like the life and the vitality and just kind of the chaos of everything. And then they finally get out of the city that they were in. And this train is headed to Shanghai. Um so they were kind of in a smaller inland town and they were headed toward the coast and then they get out into kind of like the more rural area and that's where we start learning more about these different characters. There was an interesting interaction between the white characters right before dinner I think it was and it was it was right before the train got stopped the first time. Because they were all about to head off to dinner and then and then somebody from the military came by and said you all need to go oh yes get your passports and get out on the platform and one guy was all upset because he wanted to finish his dinner and the guy's like well Mr. Carmichael if you ask me I think we should consider your dinner relatively unimportant (laughs) (laughs) bub (laughs) that's where they find they're searching everybody and they Uh, found that one uh, Chinese rebel soldier who was pretty high up in the the revolution and was like second in command next to Henry Chang, I think. But then that kind of sets off the rest of the movie because now now Henry Chang wants to get that guy back. So now he, yeah. needs, a, he needs a hostage. It just, it, the whole movie was, was realistic feeling to me in, in, this, in that sense because it was portraying events that actually could have been happening at that time in China. 
and in yeah. the 20s or even earlier. And there's a really were, beautiful... I was just going to yeah. say they were battling... These two parties were battling each other for decades. Okay, can I say it was a little bit... It was a little bit bizarre to be watching this like on the same day that everything was going down in the Capitol. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, that was, that was, yeah, oh. weird. Yeah, that, so, that was horrible. Yeah. I still find it just, just I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, I'm almost yeah. at a loss for words. Same. But I anyway, couldn't believe it. Anyway. There's a, there, there's a really neat, neat scene that I wanted to make sure I mentioned uh, between Marlena Dietrich and Clive Brook on the back of the train, kind of in the, there, there's a little seating area and they're talking about his watch and sort of what, what they wished had happened. I wish you could tell me there'd be no other men. I wish I could, Doc, but five years in China is a long time. I wish I had them back. What would you have done with them? There's a scheme of things. Sooner or later we would have parted anyway. And we might never have met again. We wouldn't have parted, Madeline. We'd have gone back to England, married, and been very happy. There are a lot of things I wouldn't have done if I had those five years to live over again. There's only one thing I wouldn't have done, Doc. What, for instance? I wouldn't have bobbed my hair. Good night, Donald. May you move in. One of your lovers? No. I wish I could believe you. Don't you? No. Will you never learn to believe without proof? I believe you, Madeline. you withheld it. And now when I don't need it and don't deserve it, you give it to me. And that was, that was really touching. Like I, I, you got a little bit more of like humanity from Doc Harvey in that scene. He started to uh, kind of loosen up a bit and you could tell that they were both in love and, and, uh, she even goes so far as to get him another watch later in yeah. the film. Yeah. And I love that that uh, they were on this back of the train in, on a kind of a love seat almost, smoking that and was cool. visiting as they roll through rebel-torn territory. Yeah. You wouldn't have found me outside, I'll tell you. I'd have been hiding inside. <laughs> Same. <laughs> wow. We get to the point where Chang, Warner Olin, has stopped again. And he's really in charge, and he's looking for the right person to be a hostage. And he finds Doc Harvey, because he's important because he's going to perform brain surgery on the Governor General of Shanghai. Captain Harvey, may I see your passport? That's exactly who are you. I'm a British officer, and I demand to know by what right you're treating us in this outrageous manner. I'm the Commander-in-Chief of the Revolution. The prisoner who was removed from the Shanghai Express last night was my right hand. 
An important officer in my army. Your army? Well, you're nothing but a collection of unprincipled bandits. The Chinese government will wipe you out in a fortnight. Perhaps you would like to aid the government in collecting the price put on my head. So you first tell me just exactly what you're after. I'm looking for a hostage to force the government to return my officer. Now, will you kindly let me see your passport? Captain Harvey, why are you going to Shanghai? I've been ordered to perform an operation immediately upon my arrival. Who are you going to operate on? I'm not at liberty to reveal that information. What is the matter with His Excellency, the Governor General of Shanghai? As you doubtlessly also can read from the paper you pilfered from my bag, hemiplegia, a medical term known to the layman as paralysis resulting from a blood clot in the brain. Well, Captain Harvey, it seems I've been fortunate to find a hostage important enough to ensure the return of my officer. Surely you will have no objection if I wire the British Embassy? What if my importance is deemed insufficient to force the Chinese government to make this exchange? That emergency would be unfortunate for you all. I can't hold this village over 12 hours. Of course, Captain Harvey, I hope you won't be too angry with me if I ensure the safety of your honorable person. Not at all. And then it just all goes bad for Chang. Harvey knocks him down, and later in the movie, Chang wants to blind Harvey because of his insolence. It's, it, 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 it gets to be pretty dangerous. That's where Shanghai Lily says, don't, don't do that to him. Henry Chang wanted to have Shanghai Lily come with him out to his like mountain retreat. And she's like, you know, heck no, I'm not going with you. And then, and then he says, well, Doc Harvey is going to be blind and he's never going to be able to enjoy your beauty again. And then she says, well, never mind. I'll, she decides that she will go with him as long as Chang doesn't blind him. Yeah, to, to, to ensure Harvey's safe release. This is where it gets to be a little bit like a soap opera to me. That Now Doc Harvey thinks that Shanghai Lily's just going back to her old ways as a prostitute and doesn't really love him and is going off with Chang and doesn't know that she's sacrificing herself to save him. And there's a really, really great speech by the guy that is the the priest oh the missionary the uh, Lawrence Grant yes Reverend Carmichael where he kind of gives Clive Brooks character a talking to well sir did you find out what kind of a woman she is I found out enough to realize that she's worth a dozen of you I have no exaggerated idea of my own value but just exactly what did she say to make you so emphatic on that point she made me promise not to tell anyone, particularly not to tell you, but there's no restriction to my saying that you're a profound fool. Be that as it may, you evidently place a great deal of faith in what Shanghai Lily says. I know you men of science regard me and my kind as meddlesome fanatics, but I'd rather have one grain of my faith than all your scientific disbelief. <laughs> yes. His character changed the... the, uh, the uh... Missionary's character changed from the beginning of the film where he's sort of aloof and judging everybody, and then he gets more involved and becomes more human toward the end when he's talking to Harvey. That was a change. You can see character development in, I think, almost every character, uh, the major characters anyway. Even even Hu Fei, who doesn't have a really big role, you can see development with her as well. She's not going to take what happened to her. She's going to have revenge. Which she does. And there was a funny scene near the end where all this press shows up and is asking her 
Did you kill him with a knife or a revolver? Are you wise? Are you home? Is it Shanghai? Kill him with a knife, didn't you? And him home and come down with poker food. She just walks off. I'm not dealing with you people. I don't blame her because now she would be threatened because she had done that. You know, the rebels would try to find her. Probably. It must have been really fascinating back at this time because sound was just really beginning to come on board full force to make the characters so, so much more believable and have more character development because it was hard to do in the silent films without the, without the dialogue. I love the sound of the train at the beginning. Yes. They actually make a point and there's some shots that hold on, the whistle blowing and the wheels starting up and the the sound of the engine going, and I, I, I really like that in these train movies. I think also it was done to promote sound. Yeah, because it would have been so novel. And and I've seen the same thing with uh, when Cinemascope came out in the early 50s. They really promoted that with these big biblical shows, like of movies like The Robe, and then uh, Cinerama, and then the surround sound, and it just... Or remember when 3D was all the rage? Oh, and yes. have these movies that would really like go over the top with things flying out of the screen and over your head. And stuff. I think I went to every 3D movie that was made. <laughs> I, I, love, I love that. Even John Wayne made one. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. Yeah, wow. he, he made uh, Hondo, I think, in 1953 or 1954 in 3D. And you see the, the uh, arrows coming right at the screen and he's slugging somebody. Yeah. Oh, wow. I was, I, I probably was in row three with my glass, <laughs> my glasses on. And popcorn like flying <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so I think they did some of that just to promote the whole uh, effect of sound. But the movie moves to really a, a happy conclusion, I think. They were meant for each other. Yeah, does she ever tell him what was really happening? I can't remember. Or if he, I, I think no. What she was doing, if she was, she didn't want to tell him what she had right. done because she wanted him to come around right. to really loving her, without her having to like bend over backwards to make him fall in love with her. Yeah, that's that was what it was. That's she right. She wanted it to be unconditional. Yep. And I think he does. Like he does. He she doesn't have to tell him, and, and he realizes that she really does love him. And 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 they made a point of saying that it was an act of faith. You know, you have to have faith when you're dealing with love. It can't just be all about facts. And then they fade to black. It was a really good movie. I really enjoyed it. Way way more than what I was expecting to. So did I. I would just like to loop back to how well it... It, it holds up really well. It, with the exception of the casting that would be uh, of its time in 1932 that in today's world seems a little out of place. But I will agree with you on that. And at the same time, they did cast a lot, like hundreds of extras that were all Asian actors. Yeah, 300, I think it said. So what would you rate this film? Gosh, I really, really enjoyed it. I, I'm kind of torn between an 8 or a 9. Pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of depth to it, in, in, in a sense, but it's just beautifully shot, and it is it is a good story, and I love the cinematography and the sound. and So I'm probably going to say an 8. I would go with the 9 on it, because to me it advanced the whole, the whole industry and the whole filmmaking endeavor because of the cinematography the color the the more mature approach to the dialogue i think i would go with a nine if there was a little bit more of anime wong's character i I just think she was underutilized and there could have been they could have just had a few more scenes with her and developed her character a bit more and then i probably would have been a nine or a (laughs) ten so still a very watchable film highly recommended for our listeners which leads us into our next film or two i think 
coming up next, we're going to do Lady from Shung. Uh, I keep wanting to say Lady from Shanghai. Come on, Bob. Lady from Chungking from 1942. And that one really does highlight Anna Mae Wong's character. Awesome. I started watching that one, and she's in the first, like, two minutes. Yep. <laughs> and she's she's already badass in that movie in the first two minutes. She's the leader of the rebel underground fighting the Japanese. And then after that, I think we're going to turn to Sherlock Holmes and the Hound of the Baskervilles from 1939, the original 20th Century Fox premiere of Basil Rathbone. And then that's going to be a little Basil Rathbone festival followed up with the adventures of Sherlock Holmes and then the son of Frankenstein which I am super excited about watching and then the mask of Zorro which I don't think I've ever seen that that particular version of Zorro he really hit his stride in the mid 30s up through the mid 40s I I, I watched last night the uh, for the, about the 12th time the adventures of Robin Hood where he has that he has that sword fight with Errol Flynn that's one yeah. of that's a, that lasts four minutes. Wow! I timed it. Well, and Basil Rathbone was like an expert swordsman, so yeah. They had to keep telling him dial it back. <laughs> yeah. Then we're gonna talk about Elevator to the Gallows, which is uh, was a suggestion from one of our listeners, and that looks really fascinating. A beautifully filmed movie and story from 1958. A French and film. And then I think. Yeah, French film. And then I think we're going to be hitting our 200th episode after that. And we're contemplating either one of three movies, either Citizen Kane, Best Years of Our Lives, or Star Wars. So we'll we'll figure that out as we get closer. And then we're going to come back and do The Bride Wore Black. It's the same actress, Jean Moreau, from 1968. Nancy and I watched that together. That is really a different and unusual and well-made film cool you're gonna really enjoy that one awesome the bride is on a mission to say the least <laughs> i i read the synopsis for it and i it does sound really <laughs> she awesome, so. there's no holding back i mean she's she's got uh, a few things on her mind that was our second movie with our anime wong festival and uh, coming to you from north bend this is matt and here in los angeles uh wishing everybody happy movie watching is bob <laughs> Let me do that again. <laughs> and this is Bob in Los Angeles wishing everybody happy movie watching. But Donald, there's no one here but you and I. Besides, many lovers come to Wayward Stations to kiss without attracting attention. 